This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 350, a conversation with Jerry Conway. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 350, and it's our big conversation with Jerry Conway. So Jerry sat down with me today to discuss his career in comics. Uh, we had a lot of uh, listener-submitted questions that we uh, tried to get in there as well. Um, I do want to give a bit of a shout-out to some of the listeners uh, whose questions ended up getting uh, featured. Um, now, a lot of the questions came from the Marvel Masterworks Forum, uh, so I want to thank uh, D. Brickazar for his question, uh, DJ Way, um, let's see, Die Thy Leather, uh, Mr. Owser Name, we had a bunch of questions for him that made it in, as well as uh, Fire Signing, I don't know exactly how to pronounce that name. Unfortunately, there was a number of questions we did not have a chance to, uh, to discuss with Jerry today through our, the uh, course of our discussion, but we're hoping at some point in the future we might be able to have Jerry on for a second episode to go through some of them. Um, so this was really exciting to talk with Jerry. It's funny, um, the <laughs> biggest things that people would think that, oh, you, you probably asked him about the Punisher and Firestorm. Nope. Um, there's a lot of things I wanted to cover with him. We talked about uh, a little bit about Spider-Man, uh, his reign as editor-in-chief of Marvel, um, his current work on Carnage, his return uh, to Marvel to write Spider-Man in the 80s, as well as recently writing the uh, Spider-Man Spiral storyline. So when you have a guy like Jerry who's written everything, it's very difficult to, uh, dis- to discuss everything. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, chat with him in the future. But I think uh, you'll really enjoy this episode as we uh, pick Jerry's brain and he had a lot of uh, fun stories and anecdotes to share with us. Uh, if you'd like to uh, email me at Comic Shenanigans, you can do so at ComicShenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. So thanks again for uh, tuning in for this episode, and I'll jump into our conversation with Jerry Conway. Jerry, welcome to Comic Shenanigans for our big 350th episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Adam. Now, usually I like to kind of go back to the beginning and ask you, you know, the standard questions, you know, what was your first kind of experience with comics, but what I've been trying recently is something a little bit different, um, is uh, asking instead, what's the the oddest thing that you've signed at a convention? Wow. Uh, well, there was, somebody brought a Punisher, uh, bobblehead and i think that was probably the oddest thing that i'd ever because the idea that there would be a a punisher bobblehead just struck me as as wonderfully absurd (laughs) that's a pretty good one now in terms of comics that you sign at conventions i'm guessing usually you get the standard spider-man etc what's what's the kind of uh what's a comic that you were surprised that someone asked you to sign well, sometimes people will bring me books that I didn't actually have anything to do with, and <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, you know, they, they, it's usually something where where they they believe there's an association. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten copies of uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. For example, and I, I wrote one Guardians of the Galaxy story um, years and years ago, so I guess I'm sort of associated with it. But it's not, you know, something that I that I've done on a regular basis. So I, I guess it's mostly, you know, when when you've been as ubiquitous as, uh, in the business as I was in the '70s and and uh, '80s, uh, you have a lot of books out there. Uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll have to open the book and check to make sure that I actually wrote it. 
Because no. I, I wrote a lot of I wrote a lot of comics. Uh, I mean, at various points in my career, I was writing five titles a month uh, for years at a time. So you know that adds up. Well, absolutely. Actually, we had a, a listener question specifically about that. Was the idea that when you were writing so many of these books, how much time would it take you to actually plot a comic, and how in depth was the plot? Well, it, it's. Uh, it, it's a trick question because some books would be, you know, would be more intricate and I'd be more involved with than others. Uh, I, I think it depended upon how, uh, what my relationship was with the editor, uh, what my relationship was with the book and the and the uh, the characters, and whether I was being brought in to do a, a fill-in uh, sequence or uh, it was just something that that the company considered make work, you know, to keep me busy. But generally, I would spend about a week uh, writing, uh, you know, writing a comic, and that would that would involve maybe a day or two of plotting uh, and two or three days of, of actual scripting, uh, and that's fairly standard for almost any writer. Uh, the, the 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 difference was that I I think when I was writing as many comics as I was, as I was doing, it was harder for me to plan long arcs and I would at, at various points I would use uh, uh, different tricks and techniques to sort of set myself uh, into corners that I'd have to write myself out of you know, <laughs> so that, so that I'd, I'd, I'd have opportunities to, to, to do stories uh, that, that continued over several issues. What would you say was kind of one of the harder uh, kind of make work assignments that you ended up working on? Actually one that turned out to be a very uh, successful assignment for me, which was uh, a sequence for I guess it was Super Superman Family or Super Friends Family or or one of those giant twenty five cent books that DC was doing and that I turned into a uh, a multi part Adam story uh, where uh, you know there was a, a sequence of, of, of interconnected stories with Adam uh, the Adam uh, uh, you know getting involved with different characters. Uh, and that turned out to be very successful, but it was kind of a make-work thing where they, they said, you know, we need we need to give you X number of pages a month because I had a contract uh, with DC for uh, uh, about 10 years uh, where they guaranteed me a certain amount of work per month. And in order to, to make that, you know, sometimes they'd have to, like, say, well, <laughs> you write this series, and I would like... <laughs> so, okay, uh, but I, I, that turned out to be sort of a, a fun sequence. It was, uh, uh, I think it was recollected recently uh, uh, in, in some format. It, it turned out pretty well. Now, we have a lot of listener questions, so usually I like kind of going through the timeline of your of your work, but we're going to be a little bit more scattershot today to try and fit in all these listener questions. Sure. Uh, so uh, Mr. Ousername asks, do you feel that you got published too young, and would you have, as an editor have hired a writer at your age? <laughs> well, um, I think I think actually, given the, given you know, it's hard to it's hard to ask somebody what they think of their own work. I mean, sometimes I look back and, and some of the work that I did when I was a, a teenager and a late teen, I'm embarrassed by, and other other bits of it, I'm I'm really impressed by. Uh, because it's a different person now. You know, it's like I, I'm 63 years old, and I look back at the work of this 17-year-old, and you know, I'm like, who is that guy? <laughs> you know? uh, but I, I will say that, that one interesting anecdote 
when I when I was approached to work for Marvel, uh, I think I was about seventeen years old at that point, and I took a what what was known as the writing uh, the Marvel writing test, which was. Uh, uh, I was given five or six pages of a Captain America uh, story that Gene Cullen had drawn, and I was asked to dialogue it. And I wrote dialogue for it and gave it to Roy Thomas, uh, who was the editor uh, that I was working with. And he gave it to Stan, and Stan read it and he said, "Yeah, it's fine, you know, but uh, you know, can't we? You know, it's uh, it's not the it's not great, you know, it's fine." And Roy said, "Well, I think it's really good for you know a seventeen year old uh, that." that it's really good work. And Stan said, well, can't we get some somebody who's good for a 21-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as it turned out, you know, I ended up uh, writing for Marvel, and uh, uh, Stan was confident enough in my work to give me Thor and then Spider-Man. So, uh, you know, that was, by, I think I was 18, 19 when I got to write uh, Spider-Man. So, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on the writer. Uh, I think it depends upon what skill set they bring, uh, and how willing they are to learn. Uh, I was uh, a huge sponge trying to absorb as much as I could, so uh, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, as, as a person today, maybe I, I look back and say I got that too young to really appreciate it and to develop as a writer uh, at that point. Uh, but on the other hand, I think some of the work I did was pretty good, so it's hard to say. I've actually I've been doing a reread of your uh, your run on Amazing Spider-Man lately, and it's it still holds up. It's still really an enjoyable comic. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I think I think that's among my better work. You know, what, why do you think that was? Is it something about the way you connected with the character, or yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I had two advantages. One, I had a terrific collaborator in the first year with uh, John Romita, uh, who taught me a, a lot about how to structure uh, Spider-Man stories. Uh, because John was the uh, uh, the senior partner on, on that uh, when we were writing when we were doing it together, and I would come in with a general story idea, and then he would break it down and, and, and pace it out and turn it into a comic book. And honestly, I, I don't think I could have done uh, anywhere near as, as good a job uh, as John did. Uh, so there is that. The second part was that I, I really thoroughly identified with Peter Parker because he and I were basically the same guy uh, in terms of age, you know, uh, ethnic background. Well, not ethnic background. I mean, I, I, I think Peter was probably Jewish and I was uh, Irish Catholic, but we both had the same kind of middle class, uh, lower middle class Queens attitudes and guilt and uh, uh, relationship issues and struggling with being a young adolescent, you know, who's trying to make his way in a, an adult world. I mean, I just totally, you know, got the character at that at that point, or at least my interpretation of him, you know, because every writer interprets a character differently. What was it so, like? What was it like coming to write Spider Man again in the eighties? Then, because it's as you said, it's a, it's a different version of you. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was very different. I mean, it, it also Peter Parker by that point had changed. Uh, when I came. Back, uh, Peter Parker was a, a, a you know like a mid to late twenties, married uh, uh, professional, you know, and that was me. <laughs> you know, I was actually at that point, I was in my early thirties, uh, early to mid thirties. So while I wasn't exactly like Peter Parker, I had a lot in common with him uh, uh, professionally, and I also had the advantage at, at that point of. of 
deciding because I wasn't writing the the main uh, series that I would focus my attention on the uh, supporting cast, you know, the secondary supporting cast. Uh, and people like Joe Robertson became my my surrogates, and I could identify a bit with Joe. Uh, so it was, uh, I, I, I was bringing a different skill set at that point, you know, much more professional. Uh, uh, experienced skill set I think plus I was just so excited to be back working at Marvel that you know I had a lot of enthusiasm to uh, to express you know working on those books mm-hmm. now when you did come back at one point you were writing both Web of and Spectacular did you knowingly kind of try to give them their own identity or were you not concerned with that when you were writing those books identity because it's the two artists that I was working with were very different uh, storytellers. Uh, uh, Sal, Sal Bissima was, was a, uh, a very tightly controlled storyteller, I mean, in, in, a, in a style that uh, I think was almost reminiscent of Ditko. Uh, you know, his, his work was very, very careful and uh, uh, precise. And uh, uh, Alex Saviak was much more explosive and and uh, 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 dynamic, you know, in, in, in a different way, more like Ross Andrew. So the two of them, you know, sort of encouraged different kinds of stories. Uh, but at the same time, I was trying to t- tell, a, tell a continuing story across both books. So sometimes I would do a story that would start in web and end in uh, uh, spectacular. And that was, you know, deliberate because they were books that came out, I think, one week after each other. Uh, so it was like an opportunity, uh, similar to what I had had when I was writing Batman and Detective, uh, to do, you know, continued stories across, uh, you know, in a, in a bi-monthly format, uh, you know, a semi-monthly format. Now, when you actually, I, I've always been curious, how did you get asked to come back to write Spider-Man? Because it had been quite a while. Right. Well, I had been fired by DC. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had DC and I uh, had a parting of the ways in the uh, uh, mid to early to mid '80s. You know, my, my my relationship with them was in a in a slow collapse over a couple of years, uh, and uh, part of that was you know my fault. Part of it was their fault. Uh, you know, the, the, the business was changing. The, the nature, as I said, I had a contract with them to do, uh, you know, a, a, a certain amount of work, and and the basis of, of my relationship with DC was was uh, that I was a very uh, prolific, uh, fast writer uh, who could deliver a lot of work that was of a professional, uh, you know, at minimum uh, at a minimum a professional level of work. And in some cases, better than professional. You know, that was that was the, the understanding. But there, in the early '80s, uh, DC was having a lot of trouble with uh, uh, the direct sale market because their books weren't as appealing as the Marvel books to the direct sale market. So DC started uh, putting more value on uh, 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 you know the rock star writers and artists that uh, would get fan and attention and, you know, get them, get uh, do things for them like the Dark Knight 
uh, returns, you know, and, and Ronin, which even though they weren't, you know, regular monthly books that were going to be delivering the goods on a monthly basis, got DC attention. So their, their emphasis, where they wanted to go as, as a company was more towards the, you know, the superstars uh, and somebody like me who was more of a, uh, you know, a, a journeyman uh, craftsman, uh, I started having, you know, being considered less and less important to the company than I had been before. And then that sort of provoked me into becoming more and more paranoid and more and more aggressive and more and more, you know, resentful. And our relationship just collapsed. Uh, and I went into a couple of years of, of uh, near writer's block. Uh, and, f- and fortunately, Marvel opened the door. Jim Shooter opened the door for me to come back and do some... Uh, uh, stories in there. I think the New Universe line first, and then like Thundercats, and you know various <laughs> other things. And as I as I reestablished myself at Marvel, uh, they uh, recognized you know that I might be able to contribute something to the to the company. And uh, uh, Jim Shooter, you know, approached me. Uh, I mean, Jim Salakrup approached me to uh, do some Spider-Man stories, and then that turned into you know regular regular gig and uh it was great great for me as a writer and uh uh you know very satisfying uh i, I hope for the readers mm-hmm. um i this is another uh, listener question and it was uh why was your tenure as marvel editor-in-chief relatively short-lived because <laughs> i was too young <laughs> <laughs> and and i was inexperienced and uh, the situation was just uh, uh uncontrollable i mean the you Marvel, I've, I've explained this story before in other other contexts, but Marvel had this uh, 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 editorial system that had been developed under Stan that worked when the company was a twelve issue, a twelve comic book a month uh, uh, company. Uh, you had one editor and an assistant editor, and uh, those two guys and maybe one other writer wrote all the books. <laughs> and when you're doing 12 bucks a month, that's a very practical system. You know, it, it works out fairly well. Uh, and then in the early 70s, Marvel expanded uh, rapidly to 50, 60 titles a month, but maintained the same editorial system of one editor and an assistant editor, maybe another assistant editor, and handed out all of the books to people who were of varying amounts of, of, of skill. Uh, to write, you know, these these books basically unsupervised, uh, so that by the time uh, you know Roy Thomas left, uh, uh, Len Wein and, and Marv Wolfman took over uh, uh, for about a year, and they found it impossible to control because you you had all these little these little fiefdoms where different writers, you know, were controlling their their titles and wouldn't. Really, be uh, be uh, uh, responsive to editorial direction because <laughs> you know what were you able to hold over them? You know, uh, you, you 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 were really in a bad situation. So I came in after a year at DC where I was working under an editorial system that was much more rationalized, where each you know uh, each editor there were like six editors I think working there at that time. And each editor had five or six titles a month to, to handle and, you know, had an assistant and, you know, you, you, you were supervising the books and you were, 
creating, uh, working with the writers and artists in a more hands-on way. And I came into Marvel, and uh, you know, it was just chaos. I mean, I had situations where, I mean, uh, there was one writer who was working on a book, and and he was a, he might have been a talented writer. Somebody could sit down with him and and work with him, you know, on an individual uh, basis. But there was no opportunity to do that, you know. We didn't have that, and I, I decided I needed to, to let him go, and uh, I, I figured it'd be fine because he was also working in production, and he would have an income. You know, it wasn't like I was firing him from the company. Uh, but then the, the assistant head of production came in and said, "You can't let that guy. You can't fire him off that book." And I'm like, "What do you mean I can't fire him off that book? I'm the editor." And she she said, "Well, you, you got to understand, he's a he's a member of our witches coven." There was a witch's coven at Marvel at the time, and uh, I was being told that I couldn't fire a writer off of a book because he was a member of their coven. And I said, well, you know, I'm sorry, he's still going to be off the book. (laughs) But that was the kind of insanity that was going on there. And then other people, you know threatened to quit, you know, when I, when I asked them to, to stick to a, a deadline, you know, there were, there was, there was a rebellion of a couple top talents. Who, and after about three or four weeks, I was just completely burned out. And I said, I can't, I can't, I, I didn't want to be fighting with people who are my friends. I didn't want the stress, you know, it, it, it there didn't seem it to be any real way out of this, uh, you know, short of firing everybody and starting from scratch, which is, I think, ultimately what had to be done, you know, that when Shooter came in, Shooter gets a lot of grief for being, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a real control freak, you know, who uh, is blamed for, you know, over-standardizing Marvel uh, books, you know, in, the, in that period of time. But he was doing what needed to be done to, to make the company function. Uh, but, you know, somebody like me or Archie Goodwin who followed me, we were just not constitutionally, you know, the kind of people to do that kind of of, uh, of, of work. So I lasted a month and a half, I think, and uh, <laughs> just got out. Would you, um, I guess, in that month and a half, do you have, like, a biggest kind of best thing you did and the worst thing you did, or is it even too brief to even... Well, I, one thing I did that I, I really enjoyed doing doing was working with uh, Jack Kirby and Al Milgram to do covers for the books. Uh, I did a series of covers uh, for that in that month, month and a half, that I think were pretty effective covers. But really, as an editor, you, uh, under those circumstances, you don't really have, that was part of the problem, you don't really have a lot of influence over what gets done. Uh, and we were fighting, I mean, the, 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 the it, it's hard to hard to really imagine, you know, the, the level of, of uh, chaos that was there. So it's it's not really it was there was nothing really much fun about it. Uh, now this is another reader question, sorry, listener question, which is, uh, what was the true story behind the infamous snap during the death of Gwen Stacy? Uh, well, I wrote the I wrote the outline for the uh, uh, for that issue, and my and my intention was that uh, Gwen would die in the, in the course of the fall uh, that uh, you know there was this kind of uh, urban legend that, that you know people who fall from a, uh, a great height the, the uh, uh, stress of the fall you know gives them a, like a heart attack and they die in the course of the fall 
so that was kind of my my original uh, t- take on it. But when I saw the artwork that Gill had drawn, uh, it became clear. I mean, two things became clear. One was that that was not going to be a saleable idea. <laughs> not that that just the fall alone will kill you, you know. Um, but when I saw the the, the way that Gill uh, drew the drew the catch, you know, where where Spider Man. Sin, it shoots his webbing out and catches uh, Gwen, and she swings around. Uh, it was so obvious that what Gil was trying to imply was that you know her her neck was snapping. That I just put this I just put the sound effect in. Uh, I didn't think about it twice. I thought, oh, this makes sense. You know, this this sounds good. Uh, I being a young writer and being somebody who didn't have a lot of. Uh, uh, maybe perspective, you know, at the time, uh, it didn't occur to me, honestly, how that would be received. Uh, I think, actually, it's one of those unintentional, brilliant strokes, you know, that writers have. I mean, Ernest Hemingway once said about writing that, that uh, I mean, that, that uh, theme is what you discover in your work after you've written it. And what he was try- trying to say is that most of the, the uh, really creative impulse that a, a writer or an artist, you know, brings to the work is subconscious. You know, our, most of our, our, uh, our, our larger themes are themes that we don't even know that we have until we see it in the work afterwards. So I think what I was subconsciously trying to get across was the idea that being a hero that the action, that the the, uh, the tragedy of being a, a hero is that you can take heroic actions, you can you can try to be a good person, but that sometimes you know the very effort of trying to be a good person can have tragic consequences, uh, and that fit that moment, you know, and, and it fit that moment in comics. I don't think I could have done that moment two years earlier, and I don't think it would have been relevant five years later. Uh, but at that particular moment in time in history and comics, uh, it was the story that needed to, needed to arrive. <laughs> so. It's funny that description of the of, of that story almost sounds like it could apply to your tenure as editor in chief. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, it's it's uh, it's a uh, it's a reality that that most of the things that happen in comics are. Are when they're when they're done well, you know they're they're, they're inadvertent. <laughs> you know, there's a. There, do you remember that, that anybody who tries to collect comics based on what they think is going to be successful usually ends up with a, a large pile of comics that are worthless. It's it's the it's the comic that nobody expected was going to be a hit that uh, uh, surprises you and becomes the collectible. Right, mm-hmm. uh, you know the, the, the I mean the, the classic example for me is Better Ray Bill. Uh, you know the, uh, the, the the sequence that uh, Walt Simonson did in Thor, where you know Thor at that point was not a top selling book. It was just a it was doing okay. It was it was it was you know an interesting book, but it was a middle run book. And then Walt did this incredible storyline, and that's an incredibly collectible <laughs> series of stories because nobody expected them to be. On the other hand, 
there are probably thousands of copies of New Gods Number One sitting in you know people's <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean and and it has, says nothing about the worth of New Gods Number One. It's just that the expectation is that that's going to be a collectible. So people went out and bought five, five, ten, fifteen copies of it, uh, and now they're just you know it's kind of a worthless issue, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But Better Ray Bill Number One, you know, is is worth couple hundred bucks so <laughs> there you go now going back to the death of Gwen knowing that this is another uh, listener question knowing the backlash that killing off Gwen would bring would you still have wanted to do it if you knew that in advance or would you have suggested another plot well it's kind of an interesting point because certainly for the two or three five years that immediately followed it my life was a living hell <laughs> in terms of fandom uh you know, I, I stopped going to conventions. I, I stopped reading fan mail. Uh, it was very depressing, you know, especially when, when Stan threw me under the bus, you know, and claimed that, you know, this all happened while he was out of town, which was total bullshit. Uh, you know, so I, I, I felt really beaten up and abused at that time uh, as a creator as a result. But 25, 30, 45 years later, it's considered a seminal moment in comic book history, and I'm certainly not going to turn my back on that. Uh, so while, you know, at, in that moment in time, it was unpleasant, I think it was, I, I think it was really an important moment for, the, for, for comics creatively. So I'm glad to have been part of it. I guess it's kind of what you said about, you know, the, the, the collectability of comics and that kind of thing, that... That, yeah. that, that moment became such a huge moment in retrospect, but at the time it was just another story. Right. Well, we approached it as we, – we knew that it was going to be a big, a big deal, but we didn't know it was going to be that kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we thought it was going to be a Captain Stacy uh, big deal, you know, something that would gain, you know, some attention and make, make the book more interesting and, and, and uh, you know, uh, strengthen the storytelling. Uh, but the idea that it would have cultural implications beyond that is kind of bizarre. And those, and a lot of those, a, a lot of that cultural impact part of it didn't really hit for about ten years. Uh, you know, it's only been in retrospect that you can go back and say this is the moment when. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have said this. I'm not the one who said it, but that this is the moment when the Silver Age ended. Uh, you know that this that particular time frame, you know, and that, that story sort of moved comics from a certain kind of, of uh, uh, storytelling and, and uh, 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 emotional weight to a different storytelling and emotional weight. Uh, it's, a, it's a Rubicon, you know, that, that, that we crossed. And as I say, not something that we intended, not something that, that uh, you know, we, we maybe maybe if we knew that that was what was going to happen, we might have thought twice about it because it took us into uncharted territory. Uh, but you couldn't have done a lot of the stories that have been done in the last 40 years without that, that, uh, that comic book. Absolutely. Now, I, I know we're, we're running short on time with you, so I, I have to at least ask, uh, I want to talk about Carnage, obviously, because it's a, a great book so far. Um, and also, you recently wrote Amazing Spider-Man Spiral. So what kind of prompted the return to Marvel now? Well, I've been going to conventions uh, and uh, signing old comics, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
you know, I, I, I hadn't been really in part of fan, uh, active in, in comic book fandom for a long time, and, and uh, just I retired from writing TV and had some time on my hands. And so I started going to these conventions, and I started realizing, you know, I really love this field. You know, I love these these characters. I like uh, I, I liked writing this this uh, these kinds of stories. Uh, and I had a dinner with uh, Joe Casada at uh, uh, you know uh, one of the one of the top guys at Marvel, and he was saying, "Well, why don't you come write you know write something for us?" And I said, well, "I don't know, you know, if anybody would really be interested in seeing me back there." And he said, "Are you kidding?" You know? <laughs> so you know, they, they I, I contacted them and uh, uh, they gave me you know. Uh, the, the, the Spider-Man miniseries, and then my editor on the miniseries said, "You know, would you do the Carnage book?" And, uh, it's been a, a, just a real pleasure, you know, to come back uh, and to have people react positively. You know, I mean, the, the big fear that one has when you've been out of out of something for a long time is that you're going to be hopelessly, you know, old hat. You know, <laughs> and I, I've tried really hard to write something that I think today's readership would. You know, appreciate for more than just the nostalgia that Jerry Conway is writing it. What's it like work with Mike Perkins? I had him on the show uh, actually just before Carnage had launched, and he was kind of saying what it was like working with you, and that he was really enjoying kind of putting this this story on the paper. So, what's it like working? With oh, him? it's it's just a blessing. I mean, he's such a great uh, great storyteller and artist uh, who really takes the you know when when you're writing when you're writing something you're 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 at the mercy of the artist. You know, you're totally at the mercy of how they interpret your material. Uh, they either get what you're trying to go for and are able to take it and, and raise it to the next level uh, and put in material that you yourself wouldn't even have thought of, or they just you know do a very pedestrian job that. Uh, makes you kind of embarrassed, you know, that you've worked on it. And, and, I mean, that's kind of, you know, the ugly truth of it, uh, that you are, you are, uh, you're only as good as what, as what the artist brings to it. And I'm really, really lucky that I have Mike because he takes uh, something that, that uh, could have been disastrous, you know, in, in other hands and not just delivers it, but takes it to the next level. He's just great. The first arc, especially, I mean, his his style. I mean, the fact that it was, it was set in this mine, like the 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 shadows, the darkness of it, like he yeah. really brought that to life in an amazing way. Yeah, and and what's really great is that in the next arc, we go to almost the exact opposite, and it's just as awesome uh, because we, we we you know you try to change things up, and we we go from from claustrophobia to agoraphobia. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I, I just love working with him. He's, a, he's, a, he's just terrific. I mean, I, and I haven't really worked with him in person. You know, we, he's been taking my scripts and interpreting them. But, you know, I, I, as I've learned what, what he does, uh, you know, well and what where his interests lie, I'm trying to aim my material more, you know, more to his strengths. Now, when when you were offered Carnage, was there any sense of where they wanted the character to go, or was it kind of just put in your hands, do what you do? Well, we, we actually had this this conversation about the idea that uh, Nick uh, Nick Lowe and uh, uh, Devin were saying that that uh, 
they, they liked the idea of the old Tomb of Dracula book, uh, in which Dracula is the uh, the big bad, but your focus is really on the characters who are pursuing him. And that was a real window for me into the book because, you know, a character like Carnage, I mean, any, anytime you have a, uh, a, a character who primarily is insane, you know, I mean, he's, he, it's hard to really uh, develop any, any arc for something like this, someone like that, uh, because it, they are, by definition, you know, irrational and uh, unrelatable to, to average to the average person, unless you're, you happen to be a serial killer. Uh, <laughs> but so, you, so you're trying to, to create circumstances that where you, where you have relatable characters uh, who you care about and who you who whose own destiny you're 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 invested in, and that's what's great about you know this book. You know, is it, it, it Carnage is a strong central anchor for all of these characters to revolve around. And at the same time, I want to give him something that he's pursuing and something he's interested in, uh, and that's what the, the Darkhold provides us with. Uh, so he's not just randomly you know, going around uh, killing people, but he's now got an agenda of his own, and that, that's helpful too. What, what made you decide to use you know, Brock and, um, and Jameson again? Well, you need you need somebody. You need some characters who are going to be uh, strong enough to actually uh, engage with Carnage as, as more than just uh, 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 you know people with guns. Uh, but in addition, you, you they are they are aspects of of the uh, uh, the central theme of the of the of the story, which is the monster within us. You know, the the, the part of us that. You know, Carnage. Carnage is, is a, a full ninety-five percent monster, right? You know, there's only five percent human left left in him. Uh, but you know, someone like Jameson, who is a human with a monster inside him, who he's not in touch with. You know, he doesn't have any real sense of control or, or understanding of that part of himself that gives me an aspect that is fun for me as a writer to try to uh, to show in contrast to Carnage and then with Eddie Brock you've got someone who has been a monster, has done horrible things uh, and is in some way kind of seeking redemption uh, you know is trying to, to regain his humanity uh, on some level and that also provides a contrast to Carnage. So there's sort of in a tri- there's like a triangular shape going on there uh, between the two of them. And then the human, the the, uh, the additional characters, you know, in, in Claire Dixon and Manuela Candelon, uh provide balance, you know, between those two ends because you have Claire who is, uh, you know, driven by uh, uh, her own personal demons and, and lack of insight into what she's what she's uh, uh, trying to accomplish you know she's a she's a uh, bit of a hard case you know who doesn't really want to look at the ramifications of 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 what she's doing she's kind of a monster in her own way mm-hmm. uh, and then you have Manny who is very much the human side of all of this you know she's the person who represents the consequences you know of these these monstrous events you know she's the survivor uh, you know and how she deals with it you know is uh, 
she sees the the humanity in somebody like Brock. You know, she's she sees the uh, she has a, a sense of responsibility that that Claire doesn't have. You know, uh, towards the members of her team. So it's it's just a great set of dynamics. You know that that uh, I, I, I sort of lucked into as we were developing the series. What led you to uh, one of my favorite things about the first arc is the kind of the almost running gag of uh, Brock keeps trying to talk and everyone's telling him to shut up. I don't know. It just, it just happened. You know, it, it, it happened in the first issue with between him and Claire uh, because uh, I, I just saw Dixon as this kind of hard ass, you know, who, who didn't want to hear anything about from Eddie. And Eddie is Eddie covers up a lot of his shame and, and, and guilt by being a bit of a smart ass. Uh, and so, you know, shutting him up is just, <laughs> just, you know, became a thing. Now people are saying, you know, that, that, that they, they're seeing slash fiction with uh, Eddie and, and Manny. I don't think that's going to happen, but <laughs> you know, it's, another, it's another potential uh, hashtag. <laughs> I had fun with it. I loved, I loved the idea that, that, that Eddie... Uh, who's probably the most powerful member of the group, you know, keeps getting shut down. <laughs> <laughs> what else can you tease us for uh, what's coming up in the next arc? Well, the next arc is going to get more into the, uh, uh, the, the bigger story of the, the Darkhold. Uh, we're going to be bringing in some character characters from outside uh, the core group. Uh, there's there's some major fallout and consequences from this failed attempt to uh, uh, to capture uh, uh, Carnage. Uh, that's going to force our heroes into a you know into a different direction. Uh, and there's a little bit of a storytelling trick that I'm doing, which I not a big surprise, hopefully, but uh, which is that the uh, first issue of the new arc takes place about uh, four weeks after. Uh, the events of the first arc and then the second issue goes back to immediately after the events of the first arc okay uh, so it's uh, it's a bit of a flash forward and then a flashback very cool now last question I uh, I couldn't I couldn't be talking to you today and not at least ask you about what it was like to work on Law and Order just because my wife is a huge fan <laughs> of both uh, the original Law and Order and Criminal Intent and I think specifically some of the episodes you wrote so I had to at least ask what it was like working on that show well it was a lot like working in comics I, 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 the the thing about uh, uh, television and why it was such a why comics was such a great training ground for me uh, is that Television is a, uh, at least the, the, the kind of series that, that I was working on, uh, is epi- you know, it's like episodic comics. Uh, you, you've got an overall uh, story structure and uh, character base, and each individual episode, you know, is is you know structured as a standalone story that that uh, features these characters and maybe I mean we, we were we were not doing uh, like, uh, the kind of stories that you do today where, where they're all interconnected over a course of a series arc but there were there were character developments over the time over that uh, over our, our 22 episodes uh, but it's, you know it's like it's like Working on working in comics, uh, you, you know, you work with an editor uh, or you work with a showrunner. Uh, you develop a storyline featuring characters that you yourself didn't create, but that you have some interest in, in developing. Uh, 
you try to think in visual terms and uh, in dramatic and art, uh, story art terms, uh, and you're working on a deadline. You know, you got to get it done. Uh, so it's very, it's, it was very similar and good training to have worked in comics. From but a, I'm very glad to be out of it, too. <laughs> From a teleplay perspective, did you enjoy writing for Criminal Intent or the regular Law & Order more? Uh, that was about the same. I mean, I, I, I wrote many more episodes of, of Criminal Intent, was much more involved in production on that show, so uh, I had more personal involvement. Uh, with Law & Order, I, I think I wrote three or four episodes as a freelancer, uh, which really limited the amount of interaction that I had with the, the final show. Uh, at least with uh, Criminal Intent, I was involved in pre-production and casting and, uh, you know, ha- having more influence over, you know, how my individual episodes went. So I felt more, I think, more involved. I actually have one last question that is a bit of a cheat, so I apologize. Uh, just because it made me laugh, and I'm like, I'll ask him this. Um, so Mr. Username also wanted to ask, was there ever a time comics were more lucrative than TV work? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Writing comics, I mean, I'm always... Imp- it, 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 what's funny is you see people like Josh Whedon, you know, or, or Jeff Loeb, you know, moving back and forth between comics and uh, television. And the truth is when they write comics, they're doing it because it's fun and it's, it's something where they, they uh, have more freedom you know, to express their their passions, uh, it's never lucrative. Uh, it's it, I, I could not, I would never have been able to retire uh, in comics. I mean, I would never have been able to buy a house in <laughs> comics. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I could, I mean, I would have made a living, you know, and, and been quite happy with it. But uh, the fact is that until. Uh, uh, until you you started getting these these mega sale books, you know, like that, that Marvel or DC occasionally has, uh, the average comic never made the kind of money that uh, you can make writing television. Okay, excellent. Well, thank thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you taking your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me.